Hey there, I'm Pete Townsend, and this is Money Never Sleeps. We look inside the minds of entrepreneurs and at the crossover of startups, enterprise, finance, technology, and life as we know it. In what is our first episode of 2024, the one-of-a-kind Alejandro Gutierrez joins me again as guest co-host. Alejandro is the CEO of DeFactor Labs, who provide all the required technological and financial tools for traditional companies to tap into alternative sources of financing using tokenized real-world assets as collateral. I'll link all of Alejandro's details in the show notes so you can get in touch with him. In this Money Talk segment, Alejandro and I dissect Masari's crypto theses for 2024 by riffing on our respective top five out of the hundred or so predictions from Masari CEO Ryan Selkis's 194-page super insightful read on key trends, people, companies, and projects to watch in 2024. All right here on Money Never Sleeps. Alejandro Gutierrez, how are you? Good, good, Pete. Really, really happy to be back again. Yeah, it's great to have you back. That first episode we did, I think it was it was a lot of fun. So let's do it again, right? Let's That's what I was again. thinking. You had a great Christmas and New Year's? Good Christmas, pretty relaxed. First time that we stayed in Ireland for Christmas mm-hmm. and New Year's. And uh, yeah, it was good. It's good to wind down and, and relax, reflect about 2023. It was done a pretty chaotic year for the... <laughs> for the industry, but at oh, the same absolutely. time, a lot of learning. So, yeah. Absolutely. It, and for me, it was just nuts. It was leading up to December 22nd, where I was still doing my high watermark was 15 calls in one day, interviewing founders for the Techstars Web3 class of 24. And it was just the Greg LeMond quote comes to mind. It never gets easier. You just pedal faster. That's it. Right. And it's just pounding through and making sure you're finding the good ones and going out and talk to people. It's tough, but it's compared to the founder experience, right? Of building a business, it's it's not much, right? So a, a month of hard work. And obviously all of this is hard work and it wouldn't be worth doing if it wasn't. But yeah. So when I hit Christmas, I just dropped, right? That was the 22nd at 6 p.m. I planned to do another kind of year-end wrap-up podcast on December 18th and push it out. It didn't happen. So I did the old Irish goodbye and just disappeared for the year from Money Never Sleeps. And and then now back here, obviously. Yeah. On the big day of January 10th, we're recording this in the morning and obviously we'll go live on Friday. Hey, everyone. This is a last-minute break-in before publishing this episode, given the historic events that happened since we recorded this podcast on the morning of Wednesday, January 10th, which was about 10 hours before the SEC finally approved spot Bitcoin ETFs, and they started trading in the market just 12 hours later, which was yesterday morning, Thursday, January 11th. This is historic as asset managers have been fighting the good fight to get a spot Bitcoin ETF to market for nearly 10 years in the face of rejection after rejection after rejection from the U.S. SEC, who were finally ruled to be arbitrary and capricious by the D.C. Circuit Court in August 2023 in the rejection of Grayscale's application, and this ruling paved the way for Wednesday's long-awaited approvals. On the big day yesterday, a record $4.6 billion trade volume was transacted in spot Bitcoin ETFs from asset managers such as Fidelity, BlackRock, Invesco, Galaxy, Vanek, Franklin, WisdomTree, Bitwise, and Grayscale. Although Alejandro and I called it during the episode, no crystal ball was required as this was bound to happen. We'll have more on this next week. For now, though, in the words of the great Lizzo, it's about damn time. Back to the show. Oh, my dear Lord. Yeah. Yeah. With a fake tweet, not fake tweet, the real tweet from a compromised account, the SEC's compromised account, where the... Bitcoin ETF approval was reported, but it hadn't yet been obviously reported. And then I think it was a, what do they call it? SIM swap, right? It was a SIM swap on somebody that had access to the SEC's Twitter account and they didn't have their two-factor authentication on. Uh, I read that this morning, which is uh, crazy, right? We have an entity with that power that is not uh, putting in place their own advice uh, I think the joke tell itself, right? It's just... Yeah. So good old Gary came out probably 10 minutes later and said that on X, the SEC Twitter account was compromised. An, author, an unauthorized tweet was posted. The SEC has not approved the listing and trading of spot Bitcoin exchange traded products, right? They, they haven't officially. 
but the word on the street and getting the second hand yesterday from a source who is close to one of the companies who have filed and that it's done, right? It's done. It's happening. Yeah. It's just it it it's just a matter of it being officially announced. And so Bitcoin yesterday what rallied from 45k up to 48k and then bounced back down after 10 minutes later when the tweet was revealed to be compromised. Do you reckon that is going to be any impact on when this decision is going to be communicated? Because I, I think that's a fear from everybody right now that, okay, this was a done deal, uh, but because of this situation, it might be that it's compromising or even delaying when this is going to be actually communicated properly. I think the biggest concern after seeing this yesterday for me is that these media outlets are supposed to be actually the front of when news happening and they will get the tips in order just to say, okay, this is actually officially done. Mm. They're just picking up from the same sources as everybody else, right? Well, maybe they have it. Maybe they already have it. Maybe the media outlets already have it, but it's under embargo. Uh, well, that's what they say when it's a press release that you yeah, put the correct. press release under embargo, yeah. Yeah. but a figurative embargo that it's, listen, someone has said from one of these big companies who are, who will be bringing these products to market and that an insider has whispered to a friend of theirs at one of the media outlets, listen, it's done. Yeah. Right. Like the whisper I heard yesterday. Yeah. Okay. So the media outlets obviously would CNBC reported that maybe that was to them what they thought to be the official announcement that could then let them release that embargo release the news have. themselves yeah. based yeah. upon all of the pre-work they had done and the yeah. whispers they had received already and said listen you can't announce this until the until it's official yeah. i think that should come from the different companies right i'm being careful not to mention any of them because i don't want to give away my source <laughs> <laughs> let's leave it like that <laughs> <laughs> you know so I was listening to Nick Carter and Matt Walsh on Castle Island Ventures the last couple of days to catch up on that from when I was away. And Nick Carter, who is the, the biggest advocate of all this, and I, Matt Walsh is as well, but yeah. Nick is like, listen, it's still 99% for him. And this was a podcast recorded, I think, last week. And Matt had dropped to 85%. Um, I think Polymarket had dropped to 85%. So, but I, I, from what I'm hearing, it's done. So... Yeah, saying that's what I hear as well, and from contacts and people in the space, yeah, said it's a done deal, and yeah. that is just matter of being communicated. Yeah. But and and then some of the figures being thrown around in terms of what people are expecting is that Nick Carter said twenty billion is what he expects. That's his prediction for twenty twenty four for what will go in. Uh, Standard Chartered, they had an analyst who predicted that. It would see over 1 billion inflows over just the first quarter and potentially more than 100 billion by the end of the year with the spot Bitcoin ETF products by yeah. all of these. Now, if you look at funds in general, a fund of $1 billion is a respectable kind of small fund. Yeah. When it comes to the publicly traded mutual funds type funds and exchange traded funds, and with what's expected for inflows here, you get 10 of these ETFs, each growing to a billion each over yeah. the course of the first year, you're at 10 billion easy already. Now, I don't know, yeah. 100 billion is a lot. I, I think Nick being more conservative said 20 billion. Yeah, I think 100 million is a lot of money. I think is completely overestimating what is going yeah. to happen. Well, there's the shift personally, and this is not investment advice, but in December, I rotated as they call it out of some mutual fund holdings that I had for a while and had allocated half of that into GBTC or the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. Love it or hate it, it was that I didn't want to miss the price movement that I was expecting to happen. And so and that, again, in my old Fidelity 401k that I have. And that is, I, I do expect to see on the institutional level and at the registered investment advisor, the RIA level, that we will see some reallocation out of existing wealth out there in the market and that where people are reallocating out of these more traditional holdings into some Bitcoin exposure through the ETF product. So that will be the recycling of fiat assets into crypto assets. Well, yeah. Maybe it's not recycling, it's new money coming into crypto. That's right? new money, yeah. That's new money coming into crypto, right? Yeah. But I believe there are going to be a lot of exposure for countries because we're seeing that more and more. Yeah. 
Uh, and I, I believe that will be a great opportunity from them. Like we have seen the Salvador case and uh, I was reading last week about some other countries in Latin America. I started looking at it pretty okay. closely as well. So I, th I think that would be some exposure into these countries and, and to these treasuries. Interesting. Uh, going from big institutions that would provide these services, right? And, yeah. and I think that's the big difference, right? When you have bigger players that have that reputation, that credibility, it changes everything, right? Yeah, it makes a huge difference because in Brazil, for example, hashtags came out of Brazil and people have had that opportunity to do that. And I worked with someone on a project um, a couple of years ago for to, to do just that, to bring an alternative to market and hashtags beat them to market. And they said, well, probably going to be a bit more difficult to get the banks to open up and recommend this product to all of their clients and, and investors. So the project I was working on, they decided not to go forward with it. But hashtags have been one of the ones who are now going after the US product as well. And that is a product from a Brazil perspective where it was viewed as we no longer have this ability to invest in fixed income products that will give us 12% a year, which is where interest rates used to be. Yeah. And so we now actually want that more, some more upside there. That was the thesis that let's bring this type of product to market there. Then filter into some of these national treasuries. That's a, a mind-blowing concept there Indeed. Um, of what where Bitcoin, and that is the digital gold uh, thesis, right? That there is a spot in people's investment portfolios for gold with all of its economic qualities. Correct. And Bitcoin perhaps being viewed in the same light. It's evolution, like I said, it will be the, the evolution of, of that gold mentality, right? Just yeah. move into the digital era and yeah. starting getting exposure to it. I, I, I would believe that there are countries that they don't have much option than just going for that road. So, oh yeah, I don't want to get into the narrative again of the bull market, bear market, <laughs> bull market, bear market, floor ceiling that I've talked about in the past. But if, if any of that holds true over the next few years, there is significant upside opportunity here again. And this is not investment advice. So in terms of predictions, we've got a few, we've yes. got a whole bunch of them. And so Masari, the wonderful crypto data platform, and I'll call them just that, but that Ryan Selkis, who is the CEO of Masari, writes his annual crypto thesis and with more or less predictions for the year. And for 2024, this is a 194-page tome. And I was saying to someone yesterday, far more enjoyable to read. Now, I haven't read all of it yet. I just picked out the, my highlights, as, as I know you did. But it's far more enjoyable to read his prose than it would be to read any big four, big six consulting document that's 100 pages long without any pop culture references and without any links to other things that would explain things and give you more detail on on how things work. So it's a, it's I, a really well-crafted document and, and it's, it's so easy for it because there are really complex topics in there and it makes it so easy actually to go through the document. It, yeah, it is. It is fascinating. Yeah, I loved it. So I've got my top five right, that I picked out. I actually picked out about 10, but I'll leave it at five. And then there's one final one that, that I will go through. But yeah. the first one was 1.8. So AI and crypto, money for the machines as an investment trend. And that this crossover of blockchain and AI and been talking to a few folks about this recently and can blockchain save AI? Yeah. In that AI, and I don't know if it's AI running amok or it's that, AI can generate just so much content. And how do we preserve the ownership of that content and have it be at least somewhat attributed to the creator of the AI model? And that can blockchain help to do that? And then there's all different types of other blockchain and AI or crypto and AI proposals in there. We see Jesus so many algorithmic trading models out there in the traditional financial markets. And AI is, when you can apply that properly and have the real learning models in place, those algorithmic trading models in the financial markets can just go through the roof. Yeah. Imagine how you can do that with crypto as well. Yeah. Okay. And so that opens up a whole new 
arena for me when it comes to this crossover point between the two. And I started talking to people in Q4 last year about this crossover of blockchain and AI. There's some people, very small camp of people out there in the world who are at the crossover point of this. And they're very smart people. And I think it's something that it's a huge investment trend and something that I'm digging into, but you have to take it case by case unless you're wicked smart and try to understand the application of it and then get it and then say, oh yeah, actually you're really onto something. It is super interesting. I was, when I was in Australia in December, right? So I was chatting with my friend Mitchell that he has been working. He, he actually founded one of the first exchanges in Australia and has been working at the station and all these components, right? And we were just discussing about this topic and how we believe that blockchain is going to be in a way that tool to preserve trust in, into whatever AI is producing, right? Because at some point it's going to be complete or it's going to be extremely difficult to understand what is true inside databases that AI is using. So from that perspective, right, like, and, and one of the components, I'm not an expert actually in cybersecurity or anything like that, but one of the things that we, that we were discussing is, okay, how like hacking methodologies are going to be changed completely because in a softer way, you're going to be able to compromise and manipulate AI systems if your databases are not validated properly. And what solution do we have at the moment that can help with this? Well, blockchain, right? Yep. Yep. So totally. It's and, starting and getting pretty interesting, right? I was talking with someone who is doing a consensus mechanism for large language models and say, all right, if we want this an LLM to produce a result. Let's not just have one do it. Let's have three or four do it and have this blockchain consensus-driven model then validate the consent, validate that, okay, three out of the four actually came up with the right result and have that validation there. Talking with someone else who said, listen, I want to use ChatGPT for my customer support model, but I am a blockchain ecosystem and I am decentralized. How am I going to use this wallet address enabled support model on ChatGPT, and I'm centralizing it, right? And not all of their data, but they've got the address at least. And then what can OpenAI do with that data that they're then retrieving and using and producing using users' wallet addresses? So it's, yeah, we do need to decentralize this, but I, I think that that's a longer path. That's a longer path. Like, and, and unfortunately, that's the caveat with decentralized uh, ecosystems, right? That a lot of the cases you are still reliant on centralized solutions to optimize whatever you are doing. Absolutely. So the second one I had was 1.9, the three new Ds. So DPIN, DSOC, and DSI. So DPIN is decentralized physical infrastructure networks. DSOC is decentralized social media. And DSI is decentralized science. And I'm actively looking at investment opportunities in two of those three fields right now. Again, not investment advice. I feel like I keep saying that. Why don't I just put a freaking disclaimer it at does the beginning seem. of the episode? That's all I need to do. <laughs> so the decentralized physical infrastructure, can I give an example here? Yeah, well, actually, the, probably the easiest way to do it is to talk about existing ones that are out there that weren't, that existed before the DPEN moniker came up, but that folks like Arweave and that where it is decentralized file storage. Yeah. And that that is physical infrastructure that is required, these storage servers that are required, but you're decentralizing it and it's forming part of a network. And I'm oversimplifying it completely. Yeah. But that would be one of them. Obviously, Filecoin is would be considered part of that to an extent or IPFS. And you've got others that are like Helium yeah. that would be considered to be DPIN. Okay. So there there's some really interesting plays there. And a couple of years ago. When I was looking at this space of applying blockchain to just more standard everyday use cases, I didn't think that blockchain was mature enough yet as a technology to really handle this at a scalable level. Now I'm seeing more of this and that, that blockchain uh, development has just moved so fast that I, we're, I think we're ready for this. Yeah. So it's, I, I really like that one. That one jumped out at me. I fully agree with you, right? I don't know if you remember when we were in Console Freight, the early days of Console Freight, we were just creating actually proof of concept to just have a fully 
automated trade finance solution that was based actually on smart contracts and IOTs that were linked into those smart contracts, right? One of the bigger issues actually was that linkage between the physical asset and the blockchain wasn't fully there yet. Mm. And even though we did it and it was proven, it was clearly was fairly unreliable at that stage, right? Yep. <laughs> and and now I, I can clearly see it happening. I can clearly see that binding, that conduit between the real assets and that digital side, right? And I think that is going to be, especially for everything that has to be with trade finance or with custody of real assets, right? That's going to be one of the critical components for a successful development of the real world assets narrative. Right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And we've moved from, okay, put a NFC chip inside of a whiskey bottle, right? To, I, I've heard about, and I forget who brought it to market, but this paint that you can obviously paint <laughs> over the back of, say, a piece of art or something that has these NFC-like qualities to it that you can scan yeah. and say that, yes, this is actually, and you can have that link between a digital asset and the physical asset enabled by this paint on the back of a thing, a physical thing, whether that be a work of art or whether that be an actual manufactured good or something. So... so yeah, this, uh, I'm trying to look for a name. We were chatting actually uh, with that company and what they were doing is they create patterns with diamond dust. Diamond dust. Yeah, that's it. It's a spin out of MIT and we were exploring with them, did try to do a couple of cases in which we were providing finance to pieces of art. Uh, and these pieces of art were actually involved, uh, let's say in the Swiss Alps and their largest custodians and the only way you know to just track or, or make sure that actually these that, that the piece was not replaced or, or authenticate that piece was actually with with this technology so it, yeah. it, it, it is really interesting what is happening in all that space definitely definitely and on the scientific front the decentralized science that's really interesting to me as well and that a few years ago, Mihai Elisi, one of the co-founders of Ethereum, I was talking to him about his one of his projects. He gave me the example of in the in the case of a global pandemic, and this was before COVID, that a number of researchers are all able to contribute together in this decentralized way to actually quickly come up with a cure. And that the and being able to have a platform that enables all that to take place. And again, this is way before DSI. Um, but I'm looking at it now from the perspective of thinking about how scientific projects are funded and that a lot of them apply for government grants and other corporate grants and things like that. And why can't we just decentralize that in a way that where people who really, and not people, but institutions, companies, businesses, whatever, and that pull it away from the slow bureaucracy of red tape and academic type stuff and just be able to yeah in the public realm. I, and, and in a lot of countries, uh, all these is centralized through universities. And what happens with university, as you say, small, like it moves at a completely different pace, right? And, and you have all these spin outs coming out of the universities. And when you see realistically what is the one commitment, but also uh, the support that they're getting, sometimes they're not getting more than a room in a university and potentially access to a professor from time to time. And that's the extent, right? With that, they will take a 20% out of the startup. So yeah. it's difficult. Next one, and this is people to watch and with Venom. And I, now I don't know Elizabeth Warren. I don't know <laughs> Senator Elizabeth Warren. I've been gone from the U.S. for so long. A few things I learned while I was back in the U.S. One, and, and my brother-in-law said to me, Pete, you've been gone a long time. My, one of my favorite beers is Harpoon IPA, India Pale Ale. And that is brewed in Boston. Boston is part of Massachusetts, which is part of New England. Yeah. And so I thought when I heard the term New England IPA, that Harpoon was just that. Harpoon IPA was just that. As it turns out, Harpoon IPA is a West Coast IPA, but it happens to be brewed in Boston. So I got so confused whenever I went shopping for IPA and I picked out a New England IPA, thinking it would taste like Harpoon, and it's completely different. New England IPA is juicy. 
it tastes like a bit of grapefruit and fruity yeah. and lemon thrown together, right? Yeah. And I, now I that's completely clarified my beer shopping. So thank you to my brother-in-law Tyler for helping me with that. But also learned the receipt mechanism in the U.S. is still just as ridiculous. Two years ago, I reported back after my trip to the U.S. at Christmas time that with eight different mechanisms for tapping, for inserting your card, for for swiping, for getting receipts, for signing, all that is still in place and it's ridiculous. My wife and I were out for dinner one night in New York City and we got the bill and she just laughed because she's like, all right, we're going to have to calculate the tip now, right? Because it was that you, they just gave you the, the receipt and you needed to then calculate 15, 20, 25%, whatever it was. And she said, what if you get it wrong? And then you go to put that number into the machine and I'm like, it's ridiculous. Like some of the machines did have the tip calculator for you. When you inserted your card, you still needed, or tapped, you still needed to sign. But thankfully they moved some of that signature onto a little digital terminal where you sign with your finger. But that's absolutely ridiculous. So, but the whole political situation in the U.S. is just, is insane right now. You've got two old white men fighting with trying to strangle each other with their nasal cannulas to get into this presidency again with one of them who should be in jail, clearly. And just seeing this American system at play where, and got some of the ideas on this from listening to Nick Carter yesterday, but where the American political system stops innovation. And that where, when you get new technology that comes out in the financial markets, for example, and take crypto, that the incumbents flinch. They're like, oh my God, what are we gonna do about this? We need to stop it because we're at risk here. So they pay their politicians through campaign contributions to put up obstacles, to put up regulatory obstacles. Senator Elizabeth Warren has been on her kill crypto warpath for a couple of years now. And then, but after those big companies go learn and figure things out, now some some have been leaders in this space and some haven't put up any political obstacles, but a number have, a number of big ones. And I will call out Jamie Dimon probably as having some sort of open pocket with with Elizabeth Warren, even though completely outside of her jurisdiction. Then after they learn and they feel like they caught up, they tell their politicians to stand down and they let things start to go through, right? Such as the Bitcoin ETF. Yeah. So it's just such a messed up system. Now, it's, I don't it's, know. It's, the problem is it's a system, right? Like one of the things that, as you're saying, is a system that is extremely polarized at the moment. Yeah. And that's not conducive to anything positive, right? When you have the extremes, like extreme left, extreme right, like that's going on, right? But the other one is when you have a system that openly, because for me, it's just, that's the biggest sign of corruption that you can have. You can call it lobbying, you can call it whatever you want to call it, right? But realistically, it's an allowed corruption, it's an institutionalized corruption, right? And when you are paying actually your candidates to support your own view, like that's going nowhere, right? And I think, funny enough, I, I think that's something that, that Sam Papenfried did yeah. in a way well, right? Because he was loving exactly the same as traditional companies were doing, right? And and probably if that's the way, like it shouldn't be the way, but if that's the way that things work, maybe the crypto space should be considering doing something similar, right? Well... And yeah, there's so much political wrangling that takes place there. And I will go back to episode 27, I think, of this podcast with Bradley Tusk, who was a former advisor in the White House to a couple of different politicians. And he said 99% of the politicians he's ever met, the only thing they care about is getting votes. Who is going to get me the most votes to get me elected again? And that's completely a vanity contest. That's all it is. He said the only one who wasn't like that was Michael Bloomberg. He saw some fine, upstanding qualities in, in that individual. So I don't know what's happened to him. I haven't heard much of him. Yeah, it's been pretty quiet, right? Yeah. All right. I think that concept of serving societies and being elected, being a privilege, right? Yeah. That's, that's in the early days, that's what it was. That, that has changed com- completely now. It's about power and influencing more than anything else, right? And, and personal benefit as well. Yep. Next one for me was the ETF race. We've talked a lot about that already. I think BTC is happening, as we said. What's exciting is ETH happening next. Yeah. Right. And seeing that ETF and seeing what that does to staking. And last one for me was Solana and the resurgence there. That's been great to see. 
I went to Solana Breakpoint in November, had a great time there, and it's been on a run since then. Yeah. So I should go to more conferences in crypto and have that impact. <laughs> have a good back, as we say in Colombia. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I talked about this on episodes recently of just seeing the diversity of applications that are coming out of Solana. It is now the fourth ranked in terms of market cap crypto yeah. asset out there. It's moved up quickly and hopefully we see more of that because I, it's a great ecosystem. I read yesterday, actually, I think they flipped Tron two days ago or something like that in volume, which is in, in, like, that's crazy it's incredible to see right like and the diversity as you say seeing everything from meme coins to like a real world asset uh, projects that are coming from that protocol it, it's good to see i i think it's good to see because in a way you have a, a, a chain that has been so dominant like ethereum because then you have complacency so when these other networks are coming and competing well people starting paying attention and there's, okay, we need to just ramp up with our development, with initiatives, and, and that's good for the whole ecosystem. Oh, definitely, definitely. And that that interplay between ETH and Solana is quite interesting. And in the first one that you picked out, I think there were some mentions of that as well. So let's hand it over to you for your time. top five. Yeah, so if I know the, the first one that I picked up, so it's 1.2, that is Ethereum and the world computers. I picked that one because it is really interesting to see the difference on how in this paper, in this document, Ethereum is not seen actually as a store of value, right? But it's more of a technical solution. And there is a, a quote in here that is really interesting. I say, ETH long-term investment case looks more like Visa or JP Morgan than Google or Microsoft or yeah. even a commodity. And that what tells you is that that is going to be actually the rail for financial development and for fintech, right? That, and that, that, that has been my thesis always, right? That this is going to be the new foundational system for finance, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. The... And again, the On The Break podcast, they had Matthew Lemurl on, who we had on the show a few times in the last few years. He was doing his 2024 predictions. And he's putting all of this quite simply, that, listen, this is a new version of the internet. He said back in the 90s and you know early 2000s, we were digitalizing content and communication. Yeah. Now we're digitalizing commerce and finance. Yeah. And it's just that the version of the internet that we had before Blockchain meant that it was too hard to digitalize commerce and finance, and now we can. And so Ethereum, I see, has already obviously digitalized finance or has, a, has had a big role in digitalizing finance, but commerce being a big part of this. And this is some of the chats I had with Sam Williams from Arweave, which is that the Web3 is the protocolization of web services. And Correct. that you can you imagine a company that is providing a service on the internet today like e-commerce or as people are referring to it these days, commerce, they've removed the E, it's just commerce, and that you can have a protocol pro providing that service rather than a company providing that service on the internet. And yeah. could you have a e-commerce protocol? You absolutely can. It's going to be very complicated and hard to develop, but could you build that on Ethereum? Absolutely. Yeah. So you are supporting more than just finance on Ethereum as a world computer. And you look at Visa and MasterCard and say that supports commerce as well as finance? Probably supports a lot more commerce than finance. More commerce right? than finance, right? Just for them, it's just full rail and, and that's the real purpose behind. Like, and, and that's, that's the beauty out of these centralized ecosystems, right? Because they are looking at, a, let's say, from a transactional perspective, it's a more holistic way. It's not just actually the pipe on how the, the, the phones are running, right? But it's actually as well how the interaction with communities for that transaction to happen. And yeah. that's different, right? That's it completely is. different. And also with running this on blockchain rails, you can package up into that transaction, the full data of what you bought. Correct. Right? And you pass that through with the payment itself. Yeah. You've got a record of that. Yeah. And so that is a, a quantum leap ahead of where Visa and MasterCard are today. So when I think those comparisons to Visa and MasterCard for Ethereum and Solana, at being, yeah. saw that mentioned in that 
that part as well in, in 1.2 yeah. that I, I, I think aren't just, hey, a little bit of an iteration above Visa and MasterCard. It is a quantum leap. It's a quantum leap, yeah. That's not what I was saying. Yeah. The next one you had, 1.4, the yeah. resurgence of private crypto markets. I like that one too, but I'll let you talk about that one. Yeah, look, I picked up this one because like, look, I'm optimistic about a new funds coming into the space. And as I mentioned before, like what I'm seeing and more and more is a lot of recycled money, right? And I think we need to use create, and it might be the ETFs, by the way, for new money to come into the, the ecosystem. But like those new entries are critical. Those new entries are critical. Like I remember like in 2020, 2021, after COVID, there was a lot of new money that was printed in the ecosystem. A lot of mm -hmm. that money actually went into the crypto space. And that helped actually that resurgence and, and that bull market. What I see now is that there is a lot of hype in the space. You have all the big players talking about it, but they are not bringing the liquidity. So let's say is that resurgence of private crypto markets going to happen from where? Is that going to be pushed by, by, by the big players and the ETF? Or the Who use of technology? <laughs> <laughs> it is a critical point, right? Yeah. The graph that they were showing in that piece is private funding hit highest levels since May 2023 with plus 500 million. Yes. That was in November of 2023. And they're yes. splitting it out between pre-seed, Series A, Series B, C, and D. And so that being their example of the, the private crypto markets and great new money coming in and optimism coming in, but where is that money coming from? is your point. Where do you think that money is coming from? I think that's recycled money, if you ask me. Like VCs having some exits and then the being VC. able to take that those that upside on upside. those valuations and, and then recycle that, like you're saying, directly into, back into new it. investments. Yeah. But also uh, treasuries from bigger projects that have been liquidated and then coming back into the market. Yeah. Yeah. So from that perspective is... Okay, it's the same cycle, right? Yeah, so I would be right there with you because I'm not feeling any big resurgence right now at all in terms of funding of no. early stage projects in crypto. I'm not. And I was just talking to someone about this morning in that it feels like the private markets obviously are slower to respond because when you have a liquidity problem, in the private markets, that takes a lot longer to unwind versus in the public markets. You can have renewed optimism in the public markets where you can deploy yeah. that capital pretty quickly. If you have money on the sidelines and treasuries, you can redeploy that into the public markets in a day or in three. Yeah. In the private markets, it take there's a longer lead time there. Well, so due diligence that needs to be conducted that will take months yeah. sometimes, right? Again, one, one component here that definitely impacted, and they mentioned these, AI definitely impacted seed funding in the Web3 space and the crypto space uh, last year, right? Because, well, the boom was AI. And I think uh, you are in a better position to to comment on this than me, but clearly uh, investors realized quite quickly that AI has been nailed by all the big players and they are best positioned to actually provide solutions and be at the front of this technology, right? Absolutely. And that's not the case in the crypto space. Actually, the big players are the ones that are on a chase to be able to cut up with the innovation on the decentralized space. Yeah. And I think that's the reason why VCs are coming back, but they are not coming back at the rate that it was in 2021, yeah. right? Yeah, it's crazy because in, in AI, you need big scale. It's expensive. It's expensive, You're, you're yeah. churning a lot of data yeah. and th that costs money. And the bigger players have that. The smaller players do not. Yeah. In crypto, it's a lot lighter. And that I was talking to someone yesterday who was explaining to me a proposition for a consumer app leveraging blockchain. And I'm like, you don't need blockchain for this. It's like, yeah, we don't. But you know what? Because we're using it, it's far cheaper than engineering all of this ourselves. Because we've got these digital assets that we can use for these specific purposes. And if we wanted to actually do that through more of a fiat way, 
or a traditional way, it costs them a lot more money to develop. So some economy, gee, I can't believe this, <laughs> but like years ago, we were like, don't use blockchain, it's way too expensive, way too difficult. And now it's actually got to the stage with L2s where it's like, yeah. it actually is a very much a viable option to actually yeah. build what is a more traditional consumer proposition yeah. leveraging blockchain. Yeah, I still believe that we're by far from making it completely scalable. Think yes. Oh, still yeah, totally. Need, but, but we're heading there, which is good to see, right? Which is fantastic to see. Uh, I I am I feel like I have to caveat everything I say about this these days because it's I'm so optimistic about everything that listen, all of my views here are something that have a three to five to eight year timeline arc Correct. to it. Okay. Correct. Uh, and other friends like like other friends will say everything you're talking about is like twenty five years being the, the more conservative viewpoint. So but as William Gibson said, the future is already here. It's just not that evenly distributed. All this stuff exists. It's just that it's not that widely used yet. Yeah. Um, it can be used and it can be used successfully. So, But again, we'll retain my optimism. The, the next one, Alejandro, you know yeah. Centrifuge well. I know that. And this was a person to watch for yeah. 2024 being Lucas Vogelsang from Centrifuge. Tell us about that one. Yeah, look, I think as like I'm passionate about real world assets and we have been working with the guys from Centrifuge since inception. Like we're in console for one of the first pools ever created there. And in a way, we were alongside developing a lot of the concepts. And it is really interesting. Well, I know Lucas and he has been one of the leaders in the real world asset space. And I think their dream of creating these marketplaces, these fully centralized marketplaces, right, on chain have been so far extremely successful, but it's still a lot of things to do. And and the question is, for me, it is like, okay, how decentralized can these protocols be, right, mm -hmm. in order to be successful? Because you're still actually talking about the real world asset component in there that at the moment is fully centralized. But... At the same time, I think it's kudos to to, to Lucas, uh, to Martin and the guys at Centrifuge because they have been part of this role that has been difficult. And finally, people are paying attention and recognition. And I think that's huge credit to Lucas and the team. And 2024 is supposed to be the year of, of real world assets, right? It was one of the most talked about topics at Token 2049 in Singapore. I think it was Luke Kerner who we had on the show. That yeah. was one of the things he was talking about. It, it is funny, right? Like uh, in, I was in Singapore for the Singapore FinTech Festival that is supposed to be a Mortify play. And you will see that the talk around the place was tokenization of real world assets. And every single large institution in there had some sort of offering in regards to the, from mm -hmm. Standard Chatter to UBO to every single bank. Which was yep. crazy to see because in Europe, like we're not seeing any of the bigger players having that much exposure and knowledge, except for probably Citibank that is doing a lot of things, but it's a close loop. It's just what they are developing for themselves. This was actually full offerings for large institutions. Yeah, I know. And and it it's that I think this point that Selkis, Ryan Selkis had was went back to 2017, 2019. Hey, 2017 ICOs, 2019, yeah. a next hype thing of security token offerings, and and either one of those took off, and that it was our RWA is just another incantation of that. But I think you've made a very good point that we didn't see many big institutions going down the ICO or STO route back in 2017, oh. 2019. Now we're seeing a lot of big institutions going down the, the RWA. There are so many examples right now, and there's a huge validation, right? Because I always talk about these. I remember in the beginning when we were, at, uh, let's say, when we started the factor, that you were going to knock on doors of these big institutions and they will give you probably five seconds. And as soon as you were talking about blockchain and crypto, you were out straight away. Mm, now they're right. actually knocking on the doors saying, hey, can we have a chat about tokenization of real world assets and how you're using that for financial purpose in the real world? Suddenly it's a concept that they want. And... What we see more and more right, in that space is bigger players, well, they have the financial muscle, actually, to just put a team, do the research, potentially create something, right? But the amount of 
middle-sized smaller institutions like banks around the world that they will never get actually the chance to put their hands unless it's because of protocol that has been developed this for the last five years. And that's a real opportunity, right? I think that's a real opportunity. Yeah, it is. It definitely is. And you had mentioned Europe a couple of minutes ago and what we're seeing there. And the next one that you had, Alejandro, yeah. was on Mika and TFR and Europe's leadership. <laughs> Europe is a guiding light for other jurisdictions. You want to talk about that one for a minute? Yeah, I look, and I disagree a little bit on the comments. Yeah, me too. Because in a way he's saying, yeah, this is great. It's great to have some guidance, but at the same time it's hindering innovation. And I, th- I, I disagree with that comment. I will explain you why. He was, I will believe no guidance will hinder more innovation than actually having guidance. Yeah, right. totally. And, and, and we have something. We have right? something. We have yeah. something. And 85% or eight, 70 or 80% of the G20 nations, including those big ones in Europe, have some type of crypto regulation that is now at play. At and play. the U.S. It does not. Correct. And that should be embarrassing for the U.S., but the politicians don't it, care. It should be. It should be. It should be extremely embarrassing, right? And when you actually read the pros and cons, all the pros are way more relevant than the cons, right? Mm-hmm. In that sense. And one example that I always use about how important regulation is for the space is the booming of stable coins or the asset-backed tokens, right? Suddenly, after the regulation happened, everybody knew where they were standing, and these projects actually started just moving along pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, I had a long conversation the other day. Was, well, long treatise the other day was somebody about the overlap between money market funds, e-money yeah. institutions, and stable coins, and how Europe is taking the lead on this. It had taken the lead on it for a while ago with yeah. the creation of e-money institutions, yeah. where the U.S. were still flapping around with money transmitter licenses and stuff like that. So it's Europe's definitely providing leadership, and Europe is a bigger economy than yeah. the USA. It's 450 million people here, and what 300 million or a little bit more in, in, in or the US. Like yeah. So watch out. You watch know. out. Yeah, I, I think, as I said, I think Europe at the moment is that guiding light, I, and I think it's setting a lot of precedents and parameters for other jurisdictions to come and say, okay, this works, fantastic. Let's apply something similar. Probably, I always give this example, but it's what happened with GDPR. In the beginning, yeah. nobody wanted. And then after just become or became that kind of, of, of bar that everybody is just, okay, that's the standard. Let's just go with that standard. And that's it. Last one you had, Alejandro, Oracle's RWA yes. diversification. Yes. Now, this is 8.8 and 8.9. So a combination of two of them. T- tell me about what you found here. Yeah, look, and I took these two because they are extremely related. And one of the topics in here is one of the key components that we're seeing in the real world asset space, especially on the collateralization side, is that the link between the physical asset and the digital asset is not quite clear or binding at the moment, which means that you still need to have contracts and components like that, that in a way diluted the power of having an NFT that represents all this. And the key component for that to happen is going to be oracles. As we were mentioning uh, previously, if you have some sort of station, some sort of validation that physical asset exists, right? And you can link that to an oracle, to external party into that NFT. Then you have a certainty, right? That asset really exists. Aha. Because when I think about oracles, I think about these oracle being a fancy word for a decentralized database of, say, prices. Correct. Where if it is a physical asset that has a price and you want that price to feed into a smart contract related to the holding of that asset on chain, the digital version of that, then you want that price coming from a decentralized source not yeah. some centralized pricing, pricing you know, manipulatable yeah. engine. Right? Correct. So put it through an Oracle. and But you're talking about the actual proof that the physical asset exists. And, and, and also the pricing of that asset. And yeah, the pricing as well, obviously, but the proof that it exists and the way yeah. that this was done by trustees and still to this day is done where you have a bond a bearer bond where it is actually only the value of it is only granted to the physical bearer of that asset. 
Yeah. And when that is held in custody by a trustee, the way that they evidence that it exists is they go to the file cabinet and they look to make sure that where they last signed their name over the seal of the envelope, that has not been broken. Yeah. Okay. And so that's a little bit manual. So let's do this on chain. That's, I love that. That's a great one. So that's, that's the way I see it, right? And I think those two are going to be like, yeah, as you're saying, like, if we're talking here about creating a decentralized risk mitigation frameworks, oracles are going to be playing one of the main or most important components in that. Definitely. Definitely. All right. Well, we've done this one justice. It is a big report, like I said, 194 pages. Yeah. I recommend that people go read that and spend a little bit of time doing that and would challenge people to pick out their favorite ones and send it through. And if you do dare to do that, we will give you a shout out on an upcoming episode and say, this is the one that so-and-so picked out. I think my friend Kenny White will pick out my my spiel about New England IPA versus West Coast IPA as being his favorite one. because he, he introduced me to, to New England IPA when I was still terribly confused about this a few years ago and sent me a couple of nice cans when I was in Massachusetts. But the closing one for me on this was just his afterthoughts. And it was number five. And it was something like life advice. And I'll paraphrase it as being something that I say a lot of the time, which is the true value of your wealth is the amount of time that you have to spend with family and friends. Yeah. Right. So, and that's what effectively he was saying that thank you for reading this 194 page document. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode, but please go back to enjoying your time with your family and friends. Right. Yeah. The freedom to enjoy life and do what you're meant to be doing. Exactly. Well, thank you, Alejandro. Real pleasure to do this with you again. And I know I'll see you later on today. I will see you later today. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. That does it for this week, folks. You can learn more about what we just covered in the show notes on our website, moneyneversleeps.ie. Thanks to Alejandro Gutierrez for all the insights he shared in co-hosting this episode with me. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify as it helps others to find the show. Also, thanks to Conan Brophy from Create Sound for mixing and editing this episode. Conan is an excellent media man to get in touch with when you're thinking about launching your own podcast. As for me, I'm an early-stage startup investor focused on where fintech meets crypto and crypto meets Web3, and I lead the Techstars Web3 Accelerator. There are plenty of links in the show notes on moneyneversleeps.ie on how to get in touch, so don't hesitate to reach out. Finally, until next time, thanks for listening. See ya! Money never sleeps, pal.